Our scripture reading this morning is taken from 2 Timothy chapter 1, if you wish to turn there. Second Timothy chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 12. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind, remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. If you would turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 9, <clears throat> John chapter 9. <clears throat> it's just about a month ago that we looked at the invitation of Jesus to come to him and rest. Sleep and Sabbath are a significant part of finding our rest as creatures of God. But we need more than physical rest. We also need rest for our souls, rest for our minds. Jesus came as that rest. And whenever we find ourselves in situations fraught with uncertainty, fraught with a lack of clarity, haziness, fuzziness, it's entirely natural for us to begin the quest to find some definitive answers to questions that will hopefully help us to navigate the confusion, the chaos of a very complex world. You see, we are a people who like certainty. And some of us more than others like sameness in order to assure certainty and stability. I've learned that in chaos lies opportunity. Okay, now I doubt if there's anyone here who actually likes chaos. I can assure you I don't. But the opportunity of chaos is the opportunity for fresh clarity. If everybody sees everything perfectly and clearly, there's no opportunity. Okay, and so the Lord does seem to have a way of reaching down and stirring the pot at times, whether it's your financial pot or your relational pot or your uh, employment pot or your health pot or you name whatever other pot he might reach into and stir. And he does that because he's good and he cares more about your ultimate well-being than he does your present comfort. So God does that to churches as well, reaches in and 
stirs it. And that chaos, the, the, the struggle, is an opportunity for God to speak with fresh clarity if we're willing to listen. It also exposes for us our tendency to find our place of rest and confidence in the wrong places. Because when things are going smoothly, when there's always money in the checking account, when you never have an argument with your spouse, when your children are always loving and obedient and smiling, you can tend to become very complacent and happy with, guess what, the way things are. And we fail to have energy to move toward the way things ought to be. And so God sometimes just kind of stirs that pot a little bit. And circumstances that unsettle us, that shake us up, are an opportunity as well for us to find a place of proper confidence, which was an alternate title uh, for this sermon as well. And I've got about 10 alternate titles, but I had already published this one last week, so I stuck with it. This I know. Our story today, the story of a blind man. This blind man was fortunate, Jesus says at the end of the story, because while he was blind, he knew that he was blind. And Jesus says there are many people who are blind and don't know they're blind. In fact, they're blind and they say, we see. Only the fortunate blind folks know they're blind because Jesus has come to remove that blindness, to bring light into the darkness, to give sight to the blind. This story, in summary, is a remarkable story of a blind man's encounter with Jesus. It includes a number of other significant people that we're going to just touch in on in the course of this sermon. The disciples are there, ask an initial question that provides the context for the story. And then... Of course, the blind man is one of the key characters, second only to Jesus. The neighbors show up and get involved in this unfolding saga. And then the Pharisees are brought into the picture. The Jews, the leaders, the religious leaders of the day. And the man's parents. So the story gets rather complex. And all of these people have a different kind of response to this man, Jesus, healing this blind man. Each person responds to this miracle in keeping with his faith. They respond in keeping with where their confidence is. What would Jesus have us learn about where our confidence lies? You see, each of us have an inherent tendency toward certain blindnesses. And I'm going to suggest here today in kind of broad sweeping categories, we naturally tend toward one set or another set. We tend toward one of two postures. We tend to be either the Uncommitted skeptic will ask questions, leading questions, good questions, but at the end of the day, we won't commit to this Jesus. Or the other posture is that of the knowing skeptic. I'm sorry, the knowing critic. And these are the people that know. They know with clarity. They know with certainty. And it doesn't much matter what's happening in front of them. They already know, and they will bend the world and the view of the world to the way they see it, to the way they know it. But you see, it's not the way they see it. It's not their point of view because it's reality. And it's those people Jesus says are actually blind, but say, we see. Jesus is inviting us away from those two postures to the posture of a disciple. And the posture of a disciple is the posture of faith. 
or as one great Christian thinker of the past said, faith seeking understanding. Not knowledge that leads to faith, or an open skepticism that refuses to surrender to faith. Rather, a trusting faith in Jesus that seeks to understand. Now, John, and I'm, I'm hoping the Lord allows me to live and preach long enough that I get a chance to do the book of John sometime. Okay, I, uh, Probably three months ago, I made the decision that my first sermon back would be coming to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and my second one would be John 9. It's a story I've gone back to many times when I have faced struggle, uncertainty, and particularly circumstances that have shaken my confidence. And when your confidence is shaken, you have to find some place to hang on, something that's secure. And as a testimony today, I want to say, this I know. I was blind and now I see. This I know, as Paul said in Timothy, I know whom I have believed and am absolutely convinced that he is able to keep to guard what I entrust to him. There are many what's I don't know. I have philosophical questions. I have theological questions. I have human people questions, the, uh, personal relational questions. I have all kinds of questions. And I think sometimes that God, you know, broke, uh, maybe in such a broken way that the questions come faster than the answers. And that's one of the particular darknesses that I struggle with. But to find a confidence and be able to say, I know whom I have believed. To trust him and to seek answers in that process. John makes it very clear. The purpose for his writing this gospel, which was the last of the four gospels to be written, as we understand it. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 he said, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of, of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that, here's his purpose for the entire book, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, and notice all the things he doesn't say. He doesn't say so that you may be able to get it perfectly right, so that you may have absolute confidence that you're right, so that you may pick the perfect church to be a part of, so that you know exactly how to answer every question that comes up, uh, so that you can go to heaven when you die. There's a host of things he doesn't say. He says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. For John... What he is saying is faith in Jesus Christ, he believes to be absolutely essential at the very center, at the very foundation of Christian life. And then he unpacks it, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Faith in Christ resulting in being fully alive toward God in the world. That's the simple essence of why the Gospel of John is written. And it becomes abundantly clear in this passage, John is working to achieve that in this particular story. So we're going to look at the context, which is the first seven verses of this passage. What, what prompts this unique conversation and this expanding group of people? What's, what's, the, context? what's the context? And you'll discover it's a question that we ask all the time. It's nothing new. Same old question. And then we'll note how this controversy plays out in the major characters of the story. And then we'll wrap it up with a brief conclusion of Jesus' words in summation. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. And feel free to either follow along in your copies of the scriptures or just listen to the story. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, 
this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground, made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I'm the man, I'm the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud in my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who does say, I'm sorry, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. And here we have the parenthetical explanation. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already. And you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You were his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. I want you to catch that that line. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. 
Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. A most remarkable story. Most remarkable story. And if we're honest, we find ourselves in in these same places. So the context for the story, the context for the controversy, rather, is this man who was blind, and he was blind from birth. The disciples encounter him and ask the very same question that we ask, and Brother James was addressing in his study of the book of of Job. Rabbi, somebody must have sinned, and this man was born blind as a direct result of someone's sin. Who was it? Was it the man? Now, that's an interesting question. Okay, is this reincarnation? He sinned in a previous life and is coming back blind. Anyhow, I'm not sure they're thinking too clearly. Was it this man who sinned and was born blind as a result of it, or was it his parents who sinned and as a Specific result of their sin, this man is born blind. That's the categories they have. And it's the categories that much of our world carries. You do something wrong, bad karma happens. You do this wrong, something's going to happen as a consequence. Okay, and this is not to mitigate the fact that all of our actions and behaviors have consequences. But not all bad things that happen are a direct result of some evil that was done. So you see someone suffering, someone suffering from cancer. You can't just say, well, it's because they sinned or their parents sinned in a particular way. And God said, ka-ching, we're going to strike them with cancer. Someone has an accident. Oh, well, they were whatever. They didn't pray that morning. They didn't have their spiritual disciplines up to date. They hadn't celebrated enough, you know, and so now they're going to be tied up in the hospital. We didn't get everything done properly. And we do tend to have this mindset, and it's the disciples' question to Jesus. Who sinned that this man was born blind? It gives us a window into the assumptions of the day regarding the cause of suffering. Sin and evil are real. But Jesus' response tells us that there is a greater purpose in the midst of sin and suffering. And this one is hard to wrap our minds around. It's difficult to come to grips with, particularly when we ourselves are suffering. We're suffering. There seems to be no purpose to the pain. There seems to be no purpose to the agony, to the difficulty. In this case, to the blindness. Jesus gives kind of an eternal perspective. He gives us God's perspective. He says, God is glorified by the redeeming, healing, restoring work of Jesus in the world. And so he says, this man was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed. That's interesting. That's completely different from what most of us tend to think. Suffering cancer, so that the works of God may be displayed. Facing fiscal hardship, so that the works of God might be displayed. Losing all my crops and my cattle and my house and my children, like Job, so that the works of God might be displayed. Where is your point of suffering? Have you considered that maybe that point of suffering is so that the glory of God might be displayed? That's what Jesus is saying. Suffering, whether there's a direct or indirect cause, that's not necessarily the question, is a place where Jesus can do the work of God and God be glorified. And I want us to consider that where suffering is occurring in the world today, where you are an observer to human suffering, Jesus says to the disciples, we must work the works of him who sent me so that the works of the glory of God may be displayed. Where you see human suffering, how might you, like Jesus did, enter that suffering? 
participate in that redeeming, reconciling work of Jesus so that the glory of God might be seen in the midst of suffering. Jesus does that right here. He sees this man born blind. He spits on the ground, makes some mud, dabs it on the guy's eyes, and says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. The man goes, washes, and sees. Don't know how old this man was, but he had seen nothing for an entire lifetime. I I can only imagine. Uh, And this fellow knew this. Okay, there was no doubt in his mind he had been blind, and now he sees. He's trying to figure out everything he's seeing. I mean, it's, it's the joy of a child discovering things for the first time just exploded to a lifetime of wondering, from a lifetime of wondering to suddenly everything being visible in front of you. And I'm sure he acted a bit like a child. Again, I just urge you to consider what is your context of suffering, loss, or burden? Can you trust Jesus that this place that you're in, this place of difficulty, is one in which the works of God might be displayed? And then where are the places you see others suffering? How might you, as a disciple of Jesus, be a part of the works of God being displayed by how you minister in compassion, mercy, grace, and truth? What's the cause? Do you know what the cause is? Does it matter if you know what the cause is? This kind of direct cause? No. God can be glorified. This was the mission of Jesus, and it's ours as well. That's the context for what follows now. This posture of Jesus, and so the posture he intends for his disciples in the midst of a broken world. This man who's received sight generates a lot of curiosity in the neighbors. So here's a fellow who was born blind, sitting by the roadside begging his entire lifetime. And he's walking around obviously seeing things. Some say, that's the man who was blind, used to sit here and beg his entire lifetime. We remember him as a little boy. He was born blind. And he rattled the can for his parents. And now he's rattling the can for himself. Look at him. He's walking. He's seeing. Others said, can't be him. Blind men don't receive their sight. Blind men stay blind men. Looks like him. Yeah, we agree with you. We agree with you that this looks like that guy. But it's not him. It's not him. And this confusion began to stir. So they asked him, which is always a good thing to do. Are you the man who was born blind? That's me. Yep, I was blind, and now I see. And he told them the story. And this is a story that he tells multiple times. And he sticks to his story. This is the way it is, folks. I was blind, and now I see. This man, Jesus, and later the prophet. He touched me. He put mud on my eyes. I went to the pool of Siloam and washed, and I saw. He sticks to his story. They shift the question. So where is this man now? He says, I don't know. He has no idea what he looks like. Because the last time he encountered him, he was stone blind. Now he sees. He could have seen him ten times for all he knows. And he has no idea who the man is. I haven't seen him. And I don't know where he is. I just know this man, Jesus, touched my eyes and now I see. Well, the neighbors and friends are these kind of inquiring skeptics. And so the next thing they do is they go for some expert advice. They go to the Pharisees. They go to the synagogue. They go to the rulers. And they say, what's with this? This man says he was blind. Now he sees something about this man, Jesus. Help us understand what's going on. And it provokes controversy there as well. So the next idea is, well, let's get the parents to see if they'll help us bring clarity. So they bring the parents in uh, with the Pharisees and the, the rulers as well and say, is this the guy that used to be blind? 
And of course, the parents join the role of the skeptics by not deeply committing to everything. They just say, okay, here's what we know. He was our son. He's our son. He's the same son who was born blind. You see the same thing we see. You ask him. Don't ask us. He's of age. Let him tell the story. We're washing our hands of this thing. Now, the reason for their avowed skepticism is inserted here in the text, parenthetically. Okay, why? Why did they not stand with their son and his story about this man, Jesus? They knew that the community they were a part of had already said, whoever says that Jesus is the Christ is going to be cast out. You're going to be outside the community. This is their worshiping community. This is their community of faith. This is the people to whom they belong. And this is not just not allowed to attend church on Sunday morning. This is no social interaction. This is the same as if you were dead to all the people that you used to love. You're cast out. And they said, we're not risking that. So all we know, all we really know here is, he's our son, he was blind, doesn't seem to be blind anymore. The fear is being excluded from the community. And the fear that's specifically pointed out shows us where their confidence lay. Okay, if you're afraid of being cast out of the community, what does that say about where your confidence lies? Your confidence lies in your community. Confidence lies in the community. These people were going to avoid the truth and commitment to the truth out of the fear of being excluded from their community, represented by the synagogue. Their confidence was in their community, They stuck with their place of confidence, and it cost them Jesus. It cost them Jesus. And I want you to note here what happens to the blind man. Verse 34, they cast him out. The blind man affirmed that Jesus is the Christ, and he was cast out. This was no idle threat. This posture, this posture is quite common in our day, both among liberal skeptics and the fearful religious conservative. They encounter the truth of Jesus. They witness his eye-opening ministry. They witness light breaking into darkness, but they won't commit to him or identify with him because they know it will cost them their community. Their confidence, their faith, and their hope is functionally in their community and not in Jesus. That's a difficult place. And I just just want to acknowledge there are some of you here that you're Commitment to being a disciple of Jesus and following Jesus wherever that truth led has cost you your community. You know what it's like to be cast out. I want you to remember what happens at the end of the story. Jesus comes to those who are cast out because they believe in him. Jesus comes. Some here find it to be the natural tendency to be skeptical, to live with that skepticism, not wanting to commit to anything, least of all such a radical rabbi as Jesus. And so you watch and you observe You're willing to gather with people who are committed to Jesus to kind of be on the outskirts and look. And you're interested, 
curious, asking questions, but you know, you know that the community you currently value, whether it's a religious community or a group of friends, you know committing to Jesus is going to cost you your community. And you're not willing to commit to Jesus. Because you'll be cast out. I urge you to reconsider. For Christians with the tendency, and I'm just going to carry this thread through, the tendency for these people is to commit to prayer, praying and prayer, but not the careful reading and study of Scripture. Okay, let's keep everything subjective and personal, not definitive. The next group of people, the Pharisees and Jews. The initial encounter with this situation is because someone has brought this man to them, the man who had been blind. Their initial judgment is divided. Some say this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. You see, they were students of Moses, students of the law, and they thought they knew exactly how Jewish people would live if they were true Jews, people of God. This man didn't fit the box, so he was outside, immediately outside. Others said, well, if he's a sinner, how can he give sight to the blind people? They had the quandary. He doesn't fit our model, but he's doing these things that seem to be from God. So they seek further evidence. They call the parents in who offer the same noncommittal response. They go back to the blind man, said, listen, we want you to give glory to God. And this is so ironic, it would be an entire sermon itself. We want you just to give glory to God. This man, we don't know anything about him. Well, it's interesting, Jesus had just told his disciples earlier, it's about giving glory to God. And in this situation, how do you give glory to God? By acknowledging Jesus as come from God, as the Son of God, the one whom God sent. But no, they said they want a different glory going to God that doesn't have to go through Jesus. Okay, that fits their perspective, fits their box. And so... The blind man won't stand for that. They try to do an end run around the Jesus question, just ignore Jesus altogether. What he said, how he lived, what he's calling people to. Just glorify God. We know this man's a sinner. The blind man said, can't do that. And he proceeds to reiterate his claims. And he does so quite forcefully. And I see I'm running out of time. I didn't think it was going to happen today. The Pharisees recommit to their dogmatism and their assumptions. They are disciples of Moses. They're the disciples of Torah. They're people of the law. They know. They know. They're keepers of the Sabbath. Of course they know. They have an understanding of faithfulness that is so rooted in Scripture and a long religious tradition and a corresponding commitment to it. See, all these things sound great. But it's the kind of commitment that blinds them to the truth of Jesus, the very one of whom Moses spoke. Most remarkable. All of the Old Testament pointing to Christ. They study the Old Testament deeply, religiously, and are devoted to it, and miss Jesus completely. And Jesus explains that for us a bit later. Interestingly, they are the ones who created this rule of fear that the other party feared. They were the ones in the know, and their confidence was in their knowing with certainty. It was rooted in their reading of the religious texts, the true texts, but their confidence had actually shifted to themselves, to their point of view, their ability to know, their capacity to understand. That's where their confidence lay. And this is the posture of not true Jesus-following faithfulness. This is the posture of religion. It's the posture of religious dogmatism. It creates fear, manages people by control, and is ultimately very divisive 
does not allow one to follow the truth wherever it leads, does not actually encourage a quest for truth. Rather, it says, this is truth. Believe it, accept it, submit to it, or we're going to cast you out. Okay, and I'm going to be candid with you. It's a form of Christianity that's all too common to us, that we know all too well. And not all of you, but many of you have seen it. Jesus is not in the midst of it. He's not there. The neighbors and parents are held back in their commitment due to fear. They prefer to remain skeptics. The Pharisees, on the other hand, believe they already possessed the truth. They were in the know, and as such, they could not follow the truth wherever it led. Because they had compromised themselves to a system, a system they had created and that they held with deepest loyalty. And that is where their confidence lay, their certainty, their ability to know. So they did what all religious certitude does. They cast out those who didn't fit, those who disagreed, those who threatened the system. They cast them out. And they demonstrate, verse 34, to this blind man who sees for the first time in his life, you were born in utter sin, utter, top to toe, in, in and out. You were born in sin. You're trying to teach us anything? And what's the attitude? We're righteous, we understand, we know. In the midst of uncertainty, some people reach for this kind of certainty. A particular system of thought in philosophy, a particular system of doctrine in theology, a particular model of making sense out of the world, whether a culture or worldview, that's rooted in a confidence in my personal ability to know, or my particular people, or my particular tradition. And we want to nail it down with a kind of certainty hoping to find security and adequate confidence in that system. And it always, always results in a judging, critical posture. Questions become trapping questions. They become leading questions. Rather than questions with a genuine intent of learning and knowing. And they must ultimately create communities of sameness, to find security because their confidence is in the system. And if you don't fit the system, you're a threat. The questions come from a commitment to their particular point of view. And questions are merely a tool to manage the situation and appearances. The question they asked at the end of Jesus himself, so are we blind also? It's a purely rhetorical question. They not for a single moment thought they were blind. It was a rhetorical question. But Jesus said to them, well, if you were blind, you would be free from guilt. But in fact, implied is, yes, you're blind. You are as stone blind as this man used to be, but you say, we see. And so your guilt remains. It's a tragic situation. People and groups of people, and just a quick line, who assume this posture in the church do better at reading scripture than at praying. but they tend to study Scripture for a particular reading of Scripture. Because they already know what it says, and they study to reaffirm their posture, their position. They ignore prayer because prayer makes one vulnerable before a Jesus who is alive. And who still, like our vice president said, speaks.
a curious, skeptical orientation, asks but won't commit out of fear of community, a knowing, judging orientation that asks but then declares and passes judgment based on certitudes, casts out those who aren't fully aligned. Contrast that to this man who's born blind. We've touched it. He's blind, and he knows it. He's given sight, and with great clarity and confidence, and we might even say certainty, he said, this I know, I was blind, and now I see. And I'll tell you, there have been thousands and millions and millions and millions of people who have encountered Jesus for the first time. They didn't know hardly any proper theology about Jesus. They didn't know about his virgin birth. They didn't understand his joint nature, divinity, and humanity. So many things they didn't know about this man, Jesus. But they encountered Jesus, and they said, This I know. I was blind, and now I see. I was dead, and now I'm alive. I have found life. In believing in Jesus, I'm alive. I have found life. And I ask us to consider, are those the people that are welcome in this church? Are those the people that you receive as brothers? People who say, I've committed my life to Jesus and I was blind and now I see. Or are there other primary criteria? What does he know about this man? Well, first he says he was a man called Jesus. Verse 17, he's a prophet. He's getting greater clarity as he considers who this man is. Verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. There's a growing clarity about who this man Jesus is. And finally, verse 38, when Jesus stands in front of him, he says, Lord, 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 I believe. And notice where that faith goes to worship. Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Have you been there? Are you there? Do you believe? Do you worship? He knows who it was that healed him. And he's discovering who this man Jesus is. He's been cast out. But Jesus heard that he was cast out, and having found him, he receives him. This man is willing to see what is. He's not trying to define reality. He's not trying to reshape reality. He's willing to see who he is. Be honest about that. He's willing to discover who Jesus is. He asks good questions and is open to letting the truth, as it's revealed, take him where it ought to take him. He's willing to hear it, even from critics, the knowers. He interacts very interestingly with the fearful, the skeptic, but he's unwilling to change the story. He's going to tell it the way it is. He doesn't know it all. But what he does know, that he was blind and now he sees, he's crystal clear with it. But he holds it open-handedly. It doesn't need to be defended. It is what it is. He is loyal to the man Jesus, which leads him to a growing awareness of who he really is, the Lord, and he worships. And I want to suggest to you that is the posture of the disciple. This posture is one of a surrender of faith to the man Jesus Christ. When Jesus looks to you and says, follow me, you don't ask all the theological, philosophical questions, all the vocational questions that immediately pop into your mind. What's this going to mean for me? What's it going to mean for that? No, you say, yes, I will follow you. I trust you, Jesus, and I'm going to follow you. And you become a disciple. You follow after him in a lifetime of discovery and learning and growing. This is not a pre-charted pathway that you can look at the map and say, okay, I'm okay with all those turns. You know, scroll down through the GPS first to be sure all the turns are approved. Skip this one. Go that way instead. You don't have the opportunity. You trust the man with the journey, or you don't trust him at all. This is the journey of faith. It's interesting, the next chapter is John 10. 
I am the good shepherd. That's where Jesus is going with this. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. This is a journey of faith, an encounter with Jesus, a commitment to the Jesus that leads to a lifetime of discovering who this Jesus is, what he seeks from us, and trusting him to navigate the chaos, the complexities, and the suffering of life. And with the blind man, we can say, this I know, I was blind, but now I see. We can say with him later, this I know, this is Jesus the Christ. Or we can say with the Apostle Paul from our scripture reading today, this one thing I know. I know whom I have believed. Don't have all my theology sorted out. I don't know all the details. I'm hoping to learn more of those. But I know, and my confidence is rooted in the man whom I believe, the one whom I trust. And I'm going to trust him in this journey. I'm teachable. I'm a disciple. You can tell a lot about your confidence by where your fears are. Is your confidence in community? Is your confidence in knowing? Or is your confidence in Christ? Community, certitudes, or Christ? And I want to note that this posture of discipleship, this posture of the disciple, nurtures both the discipline of disciplined study of Scripture and the discipline of prayer. In fact, is it requires both. We don't have time to dig into it. Your disciple, there is no resource you're going to spend more time in than the reliable, authoritative, true description of who this Jesus is. But you've seen many people read it incorrectly, and so you're going to pray. And you're going to open yourself before the one who wrote the text, before the one who is disclosed in the text. And your purpose for reading the text and studying the scriptures is to know him. Not to get it right so you can win an argument. Not to get it right so that you can be a teacher. But to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death, if by any means we might attain to the resurrection of the dead. This is how God is glorified. And I'm going to invite you to stand and turn to, in the songbooks, Evan, what's the number? 586. And we'll sing this song together in closing. 586.